when we come to this time of the year, uh, all the chock-full anticipations that children have toward Christmas and expectations for what this Christmas experience will be like, these things as children, uh, we experience them as kids, they become family traditions. Before we know it, the way we grew up as a child, the things we expect and anticipate about Christmas are somehow integrated into our adult life and they become a tradition that we have to have. Uh, some of us have certain expectations. I'd like you to tell me some of yours. It would not be Christmas without what? Fill in a blank. It would not be Christmas without? Well, without a turkey, all right. It would not be Christmas without? Chocolate, someone said? Chocolate, family, all right, now we're getting spiritual, okay. It would not be Christmas without? The flu. (laughs) There you have it. It would not be Christmas without? Santa, all right, leave that one where it is. Yeah, leave it right there, what else? Lefsa. Lefsa, how many people, it would not be Christmas without Lefsa? Three of you, all right. Uh, Someone said oyster stuffing last hour. Any oyster stuffing fans? Another one, okay. It would not be Christmas without? Christmas carols, music, great. Jesus, I like that answer. A tree, gotta have a tree. Live tree? How many live treeers? How many fake treeers? Yeah, I'm with you, I'm with you. If, if we leave the ornaments on and just shrink wrap it each year, it'd be a lot easier. Just, it would not be Christmas without? No one said movies. What movie? Christmas Vacation. Christmas Vacation. Another spiritual answer. Elf. Gotta have Elf. Yeah. Scrooge. Did someone say Scrooge? Die Hard. Wow, we got some work to do. <laughs> Christmas story, watch the bee begun. It's a wonderful life. How many? It's a wonderful. You gotta watch. It's a wonderful life. How many of you? How about White Christmas? You gotta watch. It's a what? How about Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street? You actually like that movie still? Not not the remake, but the original one. It's a very politically incorrect movie. We watched it a while back. There, it's like really politically incorrect today. If you watch it, it's kind of weird. Um, what else? What are the movies? The In-Laws, Christmas Carol, Polar Express. Okay. What? Home Alone. There you go. That's a real edifying movie at Christmas. Yeah. Um, before Christmas trees and movies, before Saint Nick, before Christmas cards. Before all the traditions of commercialism that have uh, made the end of the year the uh, most important part of retail sales, if we were to go back before these things came into our history, what did people look forward to? There was no Christmas tree, there was no Christmas season. If we were to go back to antiquity, to when the Jewish or the pious believer was looking forward to something, they were expecting Messiah. They weren't looking for exchanging gifts, for uh, decorating homes, for sending packages and cards, for big festive meals. They were looking for someone to solve their problem, someone to solve the sin condition. Israel's 
expectation was a Messiah who would come and save them from their situation. And it begins all the way back at the garden. For a few minutes, I would like to look with you at some messianic expectations. What the Bible tells us about what we're to look forward to, not to disparage or demean the Christmas traditions that we enjoy and have fun with, but could we change our thinking just a little bit and recalibrate the way we look at this season, not just even at the birth of Christ, but what it means that Messiah was going to come. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to open to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I want to think about some messianic expectations. In chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Genesis, God has created everything. All living creatures, he created an environment for them to live in. And the crescendo of his creation was man. The image of God. He's made in his image, the one who bears his image. And he makes man and woman as his image bearers. In chapter 3, of course, we read of the fall. And in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we read of the first messianic expectation recorded in the Bible. Get the picture, remember the context, everything was provided for Adam and the woman. There was one prohibition, do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is in the middle of the garden. Anything else you can eat, do anything you want, just one thing don't do. And of course the temptation will be too great and they will succumb. Genesis 3, after the fall, God curses the serpent. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Uh, tied to the serpent's uh, curse is the first promise of Messiah. So when God now is now speaking after the fall, he curses the serpent for what it's done, and he also talks about the coming of Messiah. To put it another way, the first promise of Messiah was the destruction of the serpent and the deliverance for salvation. He'll destroy the serpent and he'll deliver man to salvation. The first prophecy is that Messiah will come and defeat Satan and deliver man. Now, there are many messianic motifs in these two verses that I have read and in the larger chapter of verse 3. Just to think of some of them. Uh, the man will toil and sweat. He will work out food of, of bread in agony with thorns and thistles. Uh, there will be a curse surrounding it. The dust of death he will lie. He will struggle in this experience. All those words, every one of them are used to describe the Christ. That he will sweat drops of blood. He will be in great agony in Gethsemane. That he will wear a crown of thorns on his head. That he will be cursed and hung on a tree. And that he will be in the dust of death. And the imagery in the very first book of our Bible, in the third chapter, the way we enumerate it, right then when he curses Satan, he promises a deliverer. So from the first moment sin enters the equation, man is promised a deliverer. As Lloyd often loves to say, there was no plan B. There is only plan A from eternity past, and we see it in Genesis chapter 3. And the consequences, although devastating, are cushioned with a little bit of hope. They are going to leave what was life and now live in death. They're going to leave what was pleasure and now eke out a life of pain. They're going to leave abundance 
eat anything you want to scratch out hard bread from the dirt. They're going to leave perfect fellowship for broken fellowship and conflict. I argue and believe Adam and Eve were the two most brilliant people that ever walked the planet. They had been made in the image of God. They had perfect fellowship with God. They were without sin for some period of time. They did not crawl up out of the primordial soup. They didn't drag their knuckles and become a living being. They were made in the image of God. And they understood this fall better than I think we even comprehend it. The pain of the consequences of this fall are cushioned, are softened by the promise of a deliverer. And I think they understood it even in the curses as we read them. Now, Adam will later change his wife in chapter 3, verse 20, and chapter 4, verse 1, and he will call her Eve. Prior to that, it's been man and woman. Politically incorrect, that's what the Bible talks about. Ish being the man, Ish-ah being from the man. They're two. It's not an issue of uh, superiority of sexuality. It's an issue of two people or one. They're made in the image of God. He will change her name to Eve as the mother of life or the living one or the mother who gives life. It can be variously translated. And she will bear a boy named Cain in Genesis 4 verse 1. Now Cain in English is a word play that we miss. Uh, When we translate the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into English, we lose a lot. And uh, it's, it's sort of like you can't translate a rhyme from one language into another. It just fails. And some of the, let's call it a rhyme, the way the words sound and structure in Hebrew, you can't quite bridge them over. But to, simp- to put it very simply, the word gotten a man-child and Cain are about the same word. What she's saying is, I've gotten this man-child and I'll name him Cain. The Net Bible rendered it this way. She gave birth to Cain, and giving birth is the same word almost as Cain. She gave birth to Cain, and then she said, I have created a man just as the Lord. That's a pretty good paraphrase. I've created a man just like God created Adam. What's she saying? Life. And so the wordplay of Cain is, this is a creation of something living in the image of God, not like what it was before, but it's a glimmer of hope. And if arguably they are the two most brilliant people on the planet, they understood that birth meaning hope. I have gotten a man child. Imagine the horror when years later, the older Cain will kill his brother Abel. And they will know that this was because of their sin. They will know because they reached in the garden and tried to be like God, knowing good and evil. They will know the consequences of being out of fellowship. They will know the consequences of living in life, now living in death. They will know the consequences of plenty to having little and scratching out a life. They will know that that boy's death was because of their sin. And God will once again give them hope of life when Seth is born. And on the story continues. The enmity between Satan will continue. If you came from a Catholic background or pay attention to such things, you might have seen a statue. Notre Dame has got a statue of um, of the Madonna of Mary crushing a serpent under her foot. And it's an imagery taken from this passage. He will bite you on the heel, but you will crush him on the head. refers to the Messiah crushing the serpent on the head. How do we escape Satan's grip? How do we escape a sin nature we inherited from our parents? How do we escape the effects that our sins have on other people? How horrific a parent to think that my 
child murdering one of my other children was because of the consequences of my sin. How do we escape our depravity? God's gracious provision. Painful consequences, but there's a promise of a future deliverer. Unfortunately, it doesn't get better. It only gets worse. By Genesis 11, man has come together, and he's trying to make a name for himself. He's going to build a ziggurat to God and make a name for himself. And there's great mockery in the Bible. God looked down to see what they were doing. Oh, those ants, they're building a little anthill. Isn't that cute? And God visits his people and confuses their language. And in the so-called table of nations in Genesis 10 and 11, the people groups are born. We get very few words from Hebrew into English. One of them is Babel. That comes from Babel in Genesis 10 and 11 because they spoke Babel. And that word's taken letter for letter and brought into the English language. It's a great descriptive word when we can't understand something. It sounds like babbling. And so the, my thesis is not only was the language a differentiation, I believe races began there. If God could change a vocalization, a language skill, and a mindset, he could certainly create ethnicities to separate these people who had become one trying to build this temple to make a name for themselves to God. And the table of nations begins, and from there, war begins. It'll be one brother against a younger brother, and then it will become people groups that will fight against and kill each other because one man, through one man, sin entered the world. And they will kill and take advantage of, and injustices will breed, and it will continue. The first prophecy was that Messiah will come and defeat the tempter. He will defeat Satan, and he will deliver the promise of a son who will provide salvation to man. Another expectation from Messiah is not only that he will come and defeat Satan and provide a way for man, but he will come for all men. He will make provision for all. Turn into your Bible to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 1 to 3 are, are verses you should know well. You should have them marked up and studied well in your Bible. The so-called Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The expectation of Messiah who will come for all to make provision for every sinner. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Just as through one seed sin entered the world, now through one he makes a promise that one's going to come from him. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is, we've talked about this many times, is a unilateral covenant, meaning God is going to do this, we might put in parentheses, regardless of Abraham's participation. He's chosen Abram to be a blessing to the world. We've just fractured the world becoming one in Genesis 10 and 11 because of their idea of making a name for themselves rather than making, make a name for God. So God dispersed them, and now the wars have begun, the ethnicities have begun, and so he comes to Abram and says, from Ur of the Chaldees, you're going to be the father of a nation, and from you the Messiah will come. Notice in that passage, he will make him a great nation, but he will be a blessing to the earth. 
to all people groups, not just the Jew. Genesis 13, 15, for all the land which you see I will give to you and your descendants forever. Genesis 22:18, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you obeyed my voice. Not just Jews, all the ethnos, we'd say, all the different goyim of the world will be blessed because of you. Paul will exegete this in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He does not say to his seeds, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, Paul writes, that is Christ. Paul, the Jew's Jew, understood that the Abrahamic covenant was not merely for the Jew, was for all, and he understood that that seed that would come through Abram, Abraham would be the Christ, the provision who would come to defeat Satan and offer deliverance for man. Again, we know the stories too well, perhaps they become a little bit passe to us. Oh, I know that story, I've heard it. But we know the life of Abram is not a perfect life by any comparison. He fails many times. Isaac is born after Ishmael. Ishmael's the unwanted son, the illegitimate son, we might say. He will not be the one God blesses. He will bless Isaac. And Isaac comes along, and after some point in his late teens, God says, I want you to kill him. He's had this son well past childbearing years. This son has been the miracle child. He's been told he's going to be a father of countless descendants. He's got one child. Go kill him. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice to me on Mount Moriah. And Abraham obeys. And he straps the wood on his boy's back, and off to Moriah they go. What kind of father would do this? And Isaac asks, there's the wood, here's the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And Abram's double entendre answer, the Lord will provide. You're the sacrifice, Isaac. You didn't tell him, you're the sacrifice. <laughs> they get to the top of Mount Moriah, which by the way is where the temple complex is built today, not far from where the Dome of the Rock sits. That's the very place Isaac laid his son on a stack of wood. And as he's about to draw the knife across his neck and bleed him, some commentator has observed, there's no account in the scripture of a struggle. A young man could certainly have overpowered an older father. And somehow the father ties his own boy to a pile of wood on top of a rock. And is about to bleed him. And God stops it. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice to me. And there in the bulrushes, there in the, in the brush is a ram the Lord provided. What a memorable experience that must have been for Isaac. Probably the happiest second of his life, crawling off that pile of wood. I get to live, that ram gets to die. And there will be John the Baptist in John chapter 1 who will say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Happy are those who are called. Jesus becomes that Lamb. Jesus is the Father's Son, the, His only Son, His only begotten Son, whom He loves. This one does not escape the crucifixion. This one is killed. This one is bled. This one dies. And on the Messianic expectations continue. 
We see the Messiah and the Father. The second prophecy is that Messiah will come into the world to offer a way of salvation to all, not just to the Jew, but to all. Much more. Let's continue to the third messianic expectation, delivering from slavery. The Messiah is going to come to deliver them from slavery, both literal and metaphorical slavery. For 400 years, Israel will sojourn in slavery in Egypt. And the cry and the hue and cry will become so great that God will finally act, we might say. God's going to intervene and do something to a boy named Moses. Chapter 1 of Exodus is a story of a little boy who is put in a pitched little vessel and set on the Nile River. Why? Because Pharaoh, who didn't know Joseph, had issued a decree to kill all children that are two years and younger. It's, it's ethnic cleansing. There are too many Hebrews. They're having too many children. They're going to soon outnumber the Egyptians, and they will be a force we can't reckon with. Let's stop it with ethnic cleansing. It still goes on. Rwanda. It still goes on. What, six to 800,000 bodies in shallow graves? Let's kill a people group. Precisely what Pharaoh tried to do. And in that story, God spares one Hebrew boy. And irony of ironies, Pharaoh's daughter just happens to be out bathing in the Nile. They just happen to see the basket. They just happen to pull it up. They just happen to be a little Hebrew. Oh, it's one of the Hebrews' children. And she takes pity on it and takes it in. And oh, it just happens that Miriam's right there, his sister, his big sister, watching her little brother go down the Nile. Just so I'll be happy. I know a wet nurse, basically. I'll take him back to mom. And eventually he'll be old enough to go live in the house of Pharaoh and in the dynasty. In the 40, 40, 40 year blocks of Moses' life, we have a picture of Israel again and again and again. What does Moses mean? Literally lifting up out of the water. When you think of Exodus, I remind you again and again, redemption from slavery, consecration for worship. We've got to get God's people out of slavery, not only literal slavery, but slavery to sin and idolatry. And then we've got to redeem, to consecrate them so they can worship God. That's the story of the Exodus. It's the story of you and me. We must be redeemed from our slavery to sin, those shackles broken, so that we are no longer seen as sinners condemned to death. And now we have to be consecrated, set apart, so we can worship God the way he intended, the way he designed. It happened on the way Moses is lifted out. Chapter 1 is an outline of the whole book. And Moses' story is a story of premature redemption. He kills an Egyptian who's abusing a Hebrew slave. The next day, two Hebrews are in a scuffle, and they were, you going to kill us too? And so he runs. Perhaps Moses' story was not as scripted as we like to think, but certainly God uses that experience to develop him into a man who will deliver his people out of slavery, and he does. I would argue over one and a half million people came across the Red Sea, and they're given the law of God by Moses. So the intercession of the God-man, Jesus Christ, I believe, writes the words on a stone with Moses on the mount, and he gives those stones to Moses to take to the people the law of God, and we know the story again too well. The law was the provision for them, not to save them, but to show them their sin, to give them rails to live by in a theocratic world where God is their king and sovereign, not the way the world does things, and their religious system and their theology and their social work was all one thing. 
It wasn't a republic and Democrat with Christians and non-Christians alike. It was a theocracy. God's the king. We're his people. God's the government. We follow God's law. It was one and the same. And of course, they fail at the law again and again and again. The law came to deliver them from slavery, and ironically, the law shows them how deep into slavery they are. Third prophecy is that Messiah will come to be a sacrifice to fulfill what the law could never provide. Fourth, the messianic expectation of worldly kingdoms. We go from Abram, we go from the table of nations, we go historically, we have a united kingdom. First of all, of course, they want Saul. They want a people. Samuel the prophet says, it's evil what you do. We want to be like other nations. What a horrible comment for a pious Jew to say. We want to be like other nations. You know what? We live in a world that wants to be like other nations. We're all craning our neck to see what other nations are doing to make them powerful and wealthy. And we want to do the same things to be powerful and wealthy. Nothing's changed. Give us a king. God would say, paraphrase, oh, that I would be their king. Oh, that they would see me as their king. Give them a king. And they choose Saul. Head and shoulders taller than everybody. He looks like a king, walked like a king, dressed like a king. Had the armor of a king. Miserable failure as a king right away. And God says, let me show you how to pick a king. Not the oldest son of Jesse. Not the next, not the next, not the next. Is there anybody else? Well, there's one little snotty-nosed teenager out taking care of sheep. Go get him. No record that he bathed before he went to see Samuel. He's been out there following sheep, God tells him later. What do you do when you follow sheep? What are you walking in when you're following sheep? I took you from following sheep, God says. And this little boy is anointed the next king of Israel. Because God chooses based on the heart, not on the, based on how he looks as a candidate. And of course, David fails many times, but David is a man after God's own heart. Even in his failure, God applauds him because when he sins, he repents. When he commits egregious sin, he owns it. He doesn't blame. And that's what God wants. There's a person who will own their sin and admit their sin and say, I'm wrong, and repent and turn and ask for forgiveness. And God graciously does again and again. Open your Bible to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. This messianic expectation is because now we have kingdoms, and kingdoms go to war with each other. That's what nations do. They build kingdoms. Kings secure people to build armies. They take from landowners. They take material and goods from their people. They build armies. They build protection. They are empowered and entrusted to protect that piece of property and that people group, and kingdoms are indeed what they will have. The United Kingdom, of course, will become divided between Israel and Judah, another story for another time. But in 2 Samuel 7, David, who is the most successful king up until the time of Solomon, wants to build God a house. And he says, nope, your hands are bloody, but your son will build me one. You can build your own house, which, by the way, even a few weeks ago, they're finding more and more stuff out about David's house. I've been to David's house many times when you go to Israel, and uh, I can't wait to get back to see what else they continue to discover Proof positive, David really was there and really built the house. Unquestionable, undeniable, he was the king of Israel, and you can go see where he lived. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, 
the middle of the verse. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. My loving kindness shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And from now on, David, his lineage, and Jesus are called the son of David. It's the title oft used in the Gospels. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, because they knew the king would come through the lineage of David. Now, this passage should also be worn out and marked up in your Bible. There are layers of prophecy here. The application, obviously, is to Solomon, who will build the temple complex that David could not build. And David will spend the last few years of his life getting all the building materials, we might say, together so Solomon could implement the completion of the temple complex, which he does. But the layers are not just about Solomon. It's about the Father's Son, God the Father's Son, who will be the eternal king. When we read, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him. Obviously, Jesus will not commit iniquity. He will become sin. And look what it says. With the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. And they will beat him with Roman whips and they will crucify him and torment his body in fulfillment of this and hundreds of other prophecies that talk about the Messiah who will come. We're expecting someone to solve our problem, not just to make life better, but to design us back to what we were intended for, to worship him in spirit and truth. We've got to defeat Satan and the temptations that surround us, and then God will deliver us from that sin for those who trust in Messiah. Well, the dynasty is what's important not to miss in this passage. Twice in the last verse, your house, the kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. And in the scripture, Jesus Christ's throne is eternal. It has always existed and it will always exist. We could go on through the Psalms, many of which David wrote and sung songs of this enthronement, whether it was 22, where he would talk about the Messiah and how the Messiah would be killed, whether it's 45, where he'll celebrate the marriage of this eternal throne with his people, whether it's Psalm 72, where we'll have a judge who judges righteously, who always does the right thing in the right way. Oh, do we need that today? If you watch the news the last 24 hours, what is happening to this country? Oh, that we had judges that judged righteously. Men and women who spoke truth instead of lies. People that did the right thing in the right way. Instead of all this garbage we listen to. This will go on until the end of time, men and women. It might get better for a season, it will always get worse. Because we live in a kingdom that is run by men who are full of sin and sinful to the core. And there's one king who reigns, who is without sin. There's one king who will come, 
who will fulfill the messianic expectation to deal with Satan, to deal with our sin condition, to deal with the kingdoms and nations in conflict that will fight and wage war until he returns. We will always have war. We will always have nations raging because they are megalomaniacs. They are power-driven. They are incredibly monetarily driven because they are driven by a dark Lord. And we need a Messiah who will come and deal with sin and protect his people and provide a way and offer a way to any, to all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. In Luke chapter 2, finally, we have a lovely picture of a man named Simeon. Again, we know these stories too well. In Luke 2 verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He was righteous and devout. Boy, wouldn't that be nice to have after your name, righteous and devout? He was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. Those three words for you Bible study buffs are a gold mine. We have a Christmas song that talks about the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and he'd been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, literally the Lord's Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Now, all that simply means, we get hung up on that, um, there, were, there were basically rooms, we might think of it, in the larger temple complex where these priests lived. And more than likely, he's an older priest. Uh, perhaps he's a widower, a widower by this time in life. We don't know all the details about Simeon. But... I would simply say it this way. God wakes him up and says, hey, you need to go over to the temple. He came in the spirit of the temple where the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. And he took him into his arms. That is, he, Simeon, took Jesus into his arms and blessed God, said, now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. He believed the word of God. A light uh, excuse me, uh, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He's holding a baby, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Even Simeon understood this messianic king was not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile as well. I'm not saying that we cast aside all our Christmas traditions and <clears throat> we just look at life in this perfect Christian way, I am asking, what would it take to recalibrate your and my expectation? We live in such a horizontal view of uh, our marriage, our family, raising children, making decisions as young men and women about college and careers and who we date and, and who we marry and our sexual orientation and money, sex, and power. We, we spend so much life on this horizontal life that is chock full of sin and distortion. And what would it take for your and my expectation to be just a little bit vertical. Does it mean you gotta be 50, 60, 70, 80 and old and then you're ready to die before you start thinking of these things? Messiah's gonna come again. And when he comes this next time, he will come in a very different fashion. Frank Capra, took a short story that the author couldn't even get published and made it into the movie It's a Wonderful Life. 
Jimmy Stewart plays the role of George Bailey, the suicidal George Bailey, who runs out on a snowy bridge begging for another chance. Let's watch that clip. Clarence, get me back. Get me back. I don't care what happens to me. Get me back to my wife and kids. Help me, Clarence, please. Please. I want to live again. I want to live again. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. George! George! You all right? Hey, what's the matter? Now get out of here, Bert, or I'll hit you again. Get out of here. What the Sam Hill are you yelling for, George? You... George? Bert, do you know me? Know you? <laughs> you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car piled into that tree down there, and I thought maybe you... Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? What you... idea what Capper meant by I get to live again but if you've trusted in Christ and Christ alone you get to live again and your life and mine are what to proclaim Christ to mature in the faith and to give our life away your life and mine should be the greatest thank you back to God that we could ever give and by the power of his Holy Spirit through the work of his word in our lives, through the community of other believers walking along with us, we worship and serve him. And we of all people should get Christmas better than anybody. No matter how crazy the world is going to be, we have a hope Messiah returns. He's come once to rectify our sin condition. He will come again to roll up history. We live waiting for the long-expected Jesus to resolve all right, to deal with Satan, and deliver his people from the dominion of sin. C.S. Lewis wrote, the birth of Christ is the central event in the history of earth. The very thing the whole story has been about. The whole story of human history from the moment Adam and the woman sinned was that he would come to defeat Satan and deliver those who trust in him from the dominion of sin to live a life in an eternal kingdom that lasts forever and ever and ever. And there will be no war, no tear, no fear, no sickness, no loss, no disease, no disappointment. That's Christmas. At this time of year, we conclude our less under our tree, more for the world, and we take our global offering, invite the men and women who are going to come forward to collect that, if you've not had a chance yet, you can still do it online or later. We like to draw a line at the end of the year and say what our budget will be for um, our global offering. So a little less under archery, a little more for the world. Um, let me pray for that offering, and you can watch some images as we uh, join in worship with our worship team.
Father, we all need to recalibrate our lives as worshiping a king that's eternal. We have been redeemed from slavery and are now consecrated to worship you. Our life is to be less about us and more about you. And a small expression of that is to be a little less about our own lifestyle and a little more for other people. People who are fed, where the gospel is preached, and where lives are changed. We give now open-handed so that others will know Christ around this world. In Christ's name, amen.